0: Turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 2. Let's just take a few minutes and provoke ourselves to go home and love our spouses through the the strength which Christ gives us. If Jesus is the light, if he's the light of life, if he has regenerated us so that we are the children of God born from above, we should have great marriages for him, because of him, by him, for him, to him. All things should be for His glory and honor and that we should adorn His gospel. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Let's apply it to the subject and issue of marriage. Someone has asked me, when are you going to start picking on the men? Uh, And it was a man that asked me, because they're worried I guess, but I just want to bounce around and, and, and see what the Lord leads us to, whether it's men, women, or both of us at the same time, Let's just look at what the word of God has to say. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air. And every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones. And flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. The rule I'd like to give you right now is out of verses 21 through 23, which I just read to you, and that is to become one flesh. This doesn't mean sex. Sex is only a small part of being united with another person as if they were part of your body. We have the words here. We have the words in Ephesians chapter 5, where the Lord Jesus Christ describes his relationship to the church as being part of the same body. And the the argument is made in that same place in Ephesians 5, that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, because in a, in a sense they are, from this passage of where the wife came from. So, by their creation, a husband and a wife are one body, tightly connected. And we should promote that between us and our spouses. We first understand it right here, then we understand it by Paul, and a man loving his own body and treating his wife accordingly. Though it's been trivialized a little bit, There's been a saying about Eve's creation that has a little bit of merit. And uh, so here's Matthew Henry's version of 300 years ago that I've altered slightly to make it easier to understand. Eve was made of a rib out of Adam's side to be beside him, not to be in front of him or behind him, not from his head to dominate him, nor from his feet to be trampled on, but from under his arm to be protected near to his heart, to be loved. You know I stick to the word of God. I uh, Trivia doesn't get me too excited. But we're supposed to make an argument from the fact that that rib came out of Adam, and he said, this is bone of my... What's he when? Who was he looking at when he said, this is now bone of my bone? He was looking at Eve. Right. And so he, he saw in her that she was part of him, and we want to be that close with each other, is my whole point. The rule is simple. Let's be that close by choosing to truly be compassionate, empathetic, and interested in the life of our spouse and get involved with that life, thoughts, fears, hopes, dreams, and so forth, that we might be one flesh with them, which which is an expression that means more than sex. Yes, in uh, marital sex there is a joining of two bodies, but that is not the emphasis here or in Ephesians chapter 5. A man loves himself, a man loves his body, and since his wife came from his body, he should love her. That's what we gather from the creation ordinance. A husband and a wife are to be one body and sympathetically committed and connected. The apostle used an example in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 3 that those that were in prison, the rest of the church, should look at as being in the body with them. Because a church is described as a body. Jesus is the head. We're the body. We're we're that tightly connected like parts of a body. And so let's be one flesh in our marriages by truly getting into the soul, heart, mind, dreams, hopes, fears of our spouses by choice. Women, you were taken out of us. You're part of us. And we, as husbands, need to remember they were taken out of us. This is a man looking at a beautiful woman and his thoughts were... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He saw the fact that she did come from a part of him. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore we should be one flesh. Simple little rule. How close are you to your spouse? Closer than Sherry and me? That's not the example. But uh, I'd like to see you try how close are you? How much do you talk? How much verbal intercourse is there? Right. How much do you know their thoughts, their feelings, their hopes, their dreams, their disappointments? How do you share and bear in them? Because the woman was taken out of the man, we're bone of bone and flesh of flesh, we're one flesh. That's the simple little rule. I hope that you'll think about it. Leave and cleave is the next rule. It's verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. The rule is leave and cleave because it says that. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. Cleave, we think, is taking a big meat axe and chopping meat. But that's a meat cleaver. Uh, But it's cleave here means to stick together, to be glued together with a wife. Marriage requires leaving parents. Do you know what that means? Leave them. For parents and for children. A separate family is formed by marriage. And all the focus is to be on the spouse, not the family. All on the spouse. This is far more relational than it is geographical. Because proximity in the Old Testament, even in recent American history, was, you know, you could live close to your parents but that isn't the issue it's relational you're pulled apart you don't find comfort you don't find joy you don't find you don't get homesick because you want to be with mommy and daddy you grow up because you want to be with your spouse and so it's leave and cleave a dysfunctional home is where too much attention and affection is put on the children after they're married they don't belong to you they belong to each other leave let them leave Force them to leave. Teach them to leave. Spoil your children now with misguided affection and you ruin them for later life. Homesick children in marriage. All it says is very poorly taught children. A dysfunctional home that did not teach the total change in affection and loyalty to the new unit. I'll share a little story with you. I'm not, I don't do this very often, but here's another little one. Um, this subject, maybe a little more than other subjects. I heard a rumor when my first daughter, whom I loved very much, was going to be married to Eric. Some foolish counselor told him, do you know what kind of a father Rachel's father is and how he's going to interfere and be overbearing? I, I heard a little birdie tell me that. Do you know how many times that uh, I ate with Eric and Rachel, and they ate at my house in the first year of marriage? The daughter that I loved very much. Zero. Did that total divorcing of me from them maybe deprive them a little bit of counsel and encouragement and exhortation? Probably, but that's not my point. So just to forget that for right now, the point is, I believe in leave and cleave, and I practiced it. Right. Do you remember? Because you were the man. Remember in the living room at 249 Providence Square? You're the man. You're king. Hope you can handle her. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, that's, that's how the conversation went. I, I love this. Right. When I get to 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul does not go off into some detailed doctrinal explanation as to why women shouldn't speak in church. Do you know what he did? he goes to Genesis 2 and 3, makes two points. The man was made first. That means the woman shouldn't talk when a man's talking or a man's sitting and listening. Two, she was deceived by the devil. Do you understand the importance of the Genesis account? You know, we read Genesis every January 1st, January 2nd, January 3rd. We go through these chapters and you say, I already know this. Uh, Don't leap to conclusions too fast because there's lessons to be taught from these verses and our great apostle, our great theologian, Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, he magnified his office. When he wanted to deal with women, he went to Genesis 2 and 3. Right. And I'm going there. To, that's why we're working our way down for rules for marriage right here in Genesis chapter 2. A very destructive error in marriage is a spouse still clinging to a parental relationship for parental affection, for parental approval, for parental comfort, because what that spouse, man or woman, needs to do is find their life in their spouse. Don't meddle. Get out of them. Get out of their lives. Now, I was a little extreme. Surprised. I was a little extreme. Chuckling does not encourage me. A little extreme with Eric and Rachel, but I wanted Eric to be the man. Totally the man. Right. Rachel wasn't going to get any comfort. Eric, have you ever heard these words before, before you were married? I just want you to know that when you walk into this house, I'm on your side, and we're both against her. Sorry. <laughs> Second time. Third, because I de- deprived you of fruit cocktail when you were a little girl because I needed the three volumes of John Bunyan's works on my shelf. I couldn't afford anything. Didn't have a bed. Don't ask. But I wanted books. So when you read in Second Timothy chapter 4, and Paul told Timothy, bring the books. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what he meant. And I don't think he was reading books as bad as the ones I were. He wasn't looking for Bunyan's works. He had better books than that to read. You know, we have a church here with lots of children that are going to grow up and get married, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm giving you parents a rule. Get rid of them. You still love them. You still care about them. You'll still protect them. You'll still help them in need, but you, you want them to separate from this family and separate from this family, and they start their own family. Right. Don't meddle. You're not following the Bible. You're going to mess them up. Do not modify the rule for homesick or spoiled children that weren't trained well apologize and get them over for it. Repent. In the case of immature children, parents need to take the initiative to turn them away. No, you shouldn't be here. You've been here too many times this month. Go back to your spouse. No, you can't come in. No, you can't have supper with us. No, we're not going to do anything together. Do it with your spouse. Leave and cleave is the rule. Many of you have heard that combination of words before, but it's nicely put to help us understand this 24th verse. When the still love to be with mommy and daddy is a wife, marital damage is greater because the separation that ought to take place from a, of a girl from her family is greater than a guy from his family. The guy is the one mentioned here, but all you have to do is reason from the greater to the lesser, and you know that this applies more to the woman. That's why the woman's name changes because she comes, she's part of a whole different family tree. She plucked out of one family tree, stuck in another family tree. All of her emphasis, emphasis should be on that family tree in the ordinary case of things. When the still love to be with mommy and daddy is the wife, the damage can be greater. This is because a daughter joins another family, takes their name, joins their family tree. This is because a wife is made for her husband, the husband not for her, take, and her love and loyalty needs to shift. This is because most sons have stayed connected to fathers for business or relationship geographically. Not not so much not so much relation relationally for business or for religion. You know when you think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as examples. You know Abraham got Sarah, took her out of Ur of the Chaldeans, took her five miles, five hundred miles away. Then it was Isaac, and Isaac went back and got Rebekah through the servant of Abraham, and that was three hundred miles distance. You know she came and joined Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived right in the same vicinity together, and the women had to be brought to them because it's the woman that changes family names, joins a different family tree, and so forth. That doesn't mean she's still not connected. I love both of you daughters, and you know that I'm not saying anything against either of you. You know that what I'm saying is the truth. It's the Word of God. God knows how much I love my two daughters. Anybody that knows me, knows. Although I did get to explain yesterday... And talking to someone about the love of my daughter Rebecca, that sherry and I had prayed for nine months that it would be twins, but after a few weeks with her, we realized that God was wiser than we were and gave us one, Rebecca. <laughs> she was a lot to handle and a lot to love, and she gave a lot of love. One of my favorite pictures of all time is a two-year-old Rebecca, her eyes as big as saucers, so full of life. If I got within 36 inches of her, I got a kiss. And uh, when Chris came to ask for her in a different office than Eric asked for a daughter, I turned around and pulled out my desk drawer and pulled out that picture. Are you going to hurt this little thing? (laughs) Remember? I love that picture. Now I have a big one. Uh, I'm thankful. I'm saying all that because I love my daughters. But I love the Word of God, and I want to always practice it. And Chris, before God, you know I've never interfered between you and your, do- your wife, ever. If I have, come right after. I'll, I'll apologize and repent and drop to my knees. She's yours. Uh, and thank you for loving her. Eric, thank you for loving my daughter. Leave and cleave. Of course, parents are still honored, but there needs to be a real severing of closeness. Let the other spouse direct and lead as to how and when you connect with parents. You know, here's the, here's the girl that wants to go see her parents. Let him decide how often it ought to be. She shouldn't have a say in it because that she's tempted in the wrong direction. They shouldn't have a say. that They're tempted in the wrong direction. Let him decide. Now, if it's him that wants to be with his parents too much, let her have a role in saying, you know, we've seen them four times this month already. Doesn't the Bible say leave and cleave? I want time with you. I love quality time with you. You know, just being around your parents, you take off and you talk about this and you talk about that. She's right. Verse 25. For all of you young parents that that have children coming up, that you just got a good rule from verse 24 by the grace of God and why he wrote the Bible the way he did. Leave and cleave. Now we have another one. Verse 25. And they were both naked. Adam and Eve were both naked, the man and his wife. It says that very clearly, the man and his wife. Because if she's not your wife, you shouldn't be with a naked woman. You shouldn't be looking at a naked woman. And we're not ashamed. Let's unify our consciences in marriage. The first man and his wife had equal consciences, unstained by sin and guilt. Look what it says here. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and we're not ashamed. There was no guilt, there was no shame, there was none of the... That we have automatically, as soon as we ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil it changed men and women and, and you can see that when children reach about the age of five you know up till five you can throw three boys and two girls in a bathtub and there's just a lot of splashing but around five or so just a typical number an average number all of a sudden because God drilled them with light in darkness that they comprehend are you it's conscience Yes, I'm still upset about John chapter 1. And then when you try to throw even boys in the bathtub together, they don't want to be in there. Because a change has taken place. But before sin, look what it says. Their consciences were totally united. Let's make sure that our consciences are united with our spouse. They were both naked, Adam and his wife, and there was no squeamish reticence on the part of either. Since the fall, there's much damage to undo from habits, heresies, and home life that keeps a husband and a wife from just seeing everything eye to eye. Consciences can be taught. You know, I've been over that before. I'm not going to do all that work right now. Consciences can be taught so that your consciences can come together and you can be united like this couple was. The conscience has been used as an excuse by many wives to justify their rebellion, and that's not wise or right. Agreement is so important in a marriage. And it should be mostly or entirely settled before marriage. Because you talk about things. We had talked about everything conceivable. Sherry and I had, we were teenagers. But we let the word of God drive us, drive us, drive us, drive us, so that everything had been figured out, worked out, and we were of one heart and mind in it. Consciences can be definitely taught in both directions. More liberal, more careful. A wise husband that fulfills his role rightly can lead and train his wife's conscience. He must not be a Rehoboam or of his ilk, but rather sensitive and sympathetic to her. You know, Rehoboam did not give that nation a chance. He just came out and blew them off, and he lost 10 of the 12 tribes. He could have won them forever with just a little bit of compromise. The real source for every conscience should be the Word of God and nothing else. A wise wife may also meekly modify a husband's conscience if he is wise for it, and she makes an effort gently, respectfully, carefully, submissively to suggest something to him. You read the Song of Solomon and you see that both husband and wife were entirely sexually liberated. This wasn't due to America's sexual revolution because it took place 3,000 years before that. This was due to God being far ahead of the puritanical prudes of the Victorian era that influenced and infected some of America's thinking up until the 1960s and then it was undone by the devil himself in a different direction and way too far. Sexual inhibitions are not found in the word of God and they're equal to heresy about baptism because we trust the Bible in everything it says whether it's baptism or how a couple should relate. A couple should agree on everything by thorough communication and by God's word. Talk about everything. The Bible has settled most issues from child training to house cleanliness to sleep. What the Bible has not settled, the wife should submit to her husband's conscience. A wife has no more right to her own Christian liberty than children do toward her. A husband can disannul your vow in one second. A free will offering to God, a husband can disannul it. That says enough to me about the authority of a man over his wife's Christian liberty or her conscience. But he should gently, wisely lead her, train her, teach her, help her, and not be like Rehoboam. The wife expects the children to submit to her in matters of liberty, so it shouldn't be a hard matter for her to submit to her husband if she's wise and righteous. Children should never be able to detect a difference between a father and a mother, ever. Because they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. They were united in conscience. They were united in spirit, united in heart, united in purpose, united in intent. The greatest act of conscience together with a husband and a wife should be mutual service and worship to God. To have your consciences united about worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. The happiest couples are always those that have a priority on serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I grew up watching it. I hope sometimes I show it. The more united a couple is in service to God, the more united they will be in love. Because they're united in the most important thing of all that annihilates, crushes, and destroys all other measures of marital love. Serving the Lord together. A husband and a wife team like Aquila and Priscilla. Wow! Aquila and Priscilla! Wonderful example. Let's have marriages like that. If you two, if you two are tightly connected together by your your consciences loving the lord wanting to serve him wanting to serve the people of god you get engaged in activities outside of yourselves that are very gratifying and satisfying because the holy spirit is blessed and he blesses you on the inside and it's the happiest life because you're doing your your you're your fulfilling your ultimate destiny to serve the lord and his people and to do it together is wonderful you two have a good time? It's going to continue right on through this weekend? Oh, yeah. that's a good answer. That's a good answer. I'm giving you, let's be united in consciences about serving the Lord. Right. There is nothing more exciting to share with Sherry in a conceptual way than a point of doctrine and truth. In a worship way, than in a song together. You should, I have some good, a dear brother brought me, bought me some good speakers. When I listen to something on YouTube or online, let me tell you, I'm swallowed up by it. It just reaches out and grabs me. And to see the two of us in there, even last night, I just, I just needed to hear, crown him with many crowns than an organ. Oh. So I'm in Westminster Abbey, she's watching me, I'm. Just, I, I, need, I practically want the speakers to my ears. And, but you know what? We're rejoicing in crown him with many crowns. Right. She just watches what happens to me. And she, I know she enjoys it. She's just not as wild and extreme as I am, but we, ha- we have a wonderful time. So I say worship. I say doctrine to share the things of the doctrine of God, to share the surface of God's people. It's so wonderful to do things together, to have her go to a ladies' meeting and come home, and I ask about every single one of you women and girls that were there. It provides a foundation for life that's different, and trust me, I have lived life different ways in my 40 years of marriage, and I'm telling you the truth, I'm sharing with you the things that are best. Eric and Jackie know. They had two chainsaws in in what they drove down here, one for both of them to see if they could find a big tree and a little tree to serve the church with. I commend them. No matter what you think, no matter what you think, dedicated holiness by both in all ways maximizes love. Because if if we're going to trust this whole book, hear what I said, no matter what you think, because if you go to Barnes & Noble and you go to the marriage section, they've got all these how-to books. If you go to Lifeway, the Christian bookstore of the Southern Baptist Convention, they're going to have all these books. Do this, do that, do this, do that. You know, new positions, new places, go this, buy, You know, out to eat, you know, date night. Yeah, you know, there's, there's a little bit of value in some of that stuff. But if you want something big, you know, big to help you, right. it's to get committed to loving the Lord Jesus Christ together. Into loving his way, into loving his people, and loving his church, and to run to run around and and give yourselves. All of you know. Hey, when you have some, when you have somebody over to eat, or when you take them out to eat, when the event that happened yesterday, you know what I kept getting told by parties yesterday that had been up all night as well. We love it. Capital L, capital O, capital V, capital E. That's what I got. We love it. Bless my heart. Should bless your hearts. Right. To do things for the Lord together. There are no manuals of natural romance that can match God's spirit of his love. Right. In chapter three, very quickly, very quickly, chapter three, they hide. You cannot hide from God in your marriage. They tried to hide fig leaves, trees of the garden. You cannot hide. I send you home. You cannot hide. God sees it far better than we see it and we sense it. But God sees it far better. God sees marital treachery. Remember Malachi chapter 2? God sees if husbands do not honor their wives and so he hinders their prayers. Satan knows what goes on in your bedroom because 1 Corinthians 7 says that if you defraud your spouse, you'll tempt, Satan will tempt you for your incontinency because he knows how frequently You're making love and enjoying it. Bedroom curses are dangerous. Ecclesiastes 10.20 says, Don't even curse a rich man in your bedroom because the little bird of the air will take that and you're going to get in trouble for it. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. That's how quickly I can cover a point. It's a rule. You cannot hide. You know, there's a tendency, there's a temptation to be different here than we are at home. Cannot hide. So let's just go home and be the best. Can we be better at home than we are here? I certainly am. She's way out there, and I'm way up here, and we never get near each other. If you keep reading in Genesis chapter three, there's a blame game that takes up. Adam and Eve went straight to work blaming each other or or others, their circumstances. It's called stop the blame game. This is the rule I want to hit you with right now. Stop the blame game. It's part of depravity. Self-righteousness condemns others instead of yourself. It's part of depravity. God's an austere taskmaster. I can't please. I won't be able to live up to the standard of the Bible, so I can't do it because I had bad parents. They had a bad marriage. I'm this. I'm that. I'm not very smart. We haven't had a good start to our marriage. We've had five bad years. We've had 50 bad years. And all these excuses come up. Blame game. Adam blamed God for giving him the woman. Eve blamed the devil for beguiling her. Well, why'd you let him beguile you, you moron? Don't blame the devil. Adam, why didn't you stop her from listening to the devil so that she offered you that piece of fruit? Don't blame me for giving you an 11 on a scale of 10. Because that's what God gave Adam, but the blame game. And you know, you may not say it to your spouse, but you think it. And you know, you say it to other people. Well, he's this and he's that. Well, she's that. She's this. I've heard it. Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the devil. It's very common for foolish and wicked spouses to justify sin, their sin, by their spouse's sins. Wives foolishly say, thank, that they would submit and reverence their husband more if he loved me more. If he was more of a prince, I'd show it more precious. So two sins are better than one in your religion. Husbands foolishly say they would love and romance their wives more if she reverenced him and doted on him. Well, I guess that if the two of you are going to be stuck together, all you're going to do is being going in this direction because you're saying until he changes, I won't change. This one's saying until he changes, I won't change. Okay, go for it. You're so wise. Could you take the pulpit next Sunday and we could kneel at your feet and have the drops of wisdom dropping from your lips about the wisdom of that relationship? I won't change until he changes. You may not say it, but that's what you practice, and that is the blame game. God has clearly told us that obedience to forward authority is truly thankworthy. Not until you have a spouse that's a little difficult are you in a marriage that can earn the pleasure and praise of God. That's what the Bible teaches. Difficult spouses like difficult bosses or other authority are by God's wise plan. It's common for foolish and wicked spouses to blame their parents, blame their parents' marriage, blame their children. All kinds of stuff will come up. Instead of saying, God's right, I'm wrong, I'm going to do it God's way from now on. That is the only response. For a Christian. I have heard about growing up in bad homes. 10 years. 20 years. 30 years after conversion. 30 years after hearing the truth. I still have to hear. We grew up in bad homes. 30 years after hearing the truth of the gospel. Do you know how fast the truth of the gospel can change people? One day. right? One day. One day. How long did it take for the uh, saved people in the city of Ephesus to bring the books of their witchcraft and burn them for 50,000 pieces of silver? 30 years? One day. How long did it take Zacchaeus to pop out of the sycamore tree and say, Lord, if I've wronged any man, I will restore fourfold and I'm going to give half my goods to feed the poor. How long did it take? One minute. Because those are real Christians that are going to heaven. The people that excuse their unrighteousness and their bad marriages are not going to heaven. Quit blaming. Stop the blame game. Adam did it. Eve did it. Everybody wants to do it, but let's not do it. Let's blame us. The reason this marriage isn't as good as it should be is because of me. I'm too selfish. I'm too lazy. I haven't done the first works like the Bible teaches, but I'm going to. That's the difference. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Try your excuses on God, the judge of all, when you stand before Jesus Christ. Here's how it's going to happen. Here's how it's going to go down. Depart. Wait! Wait a minute, Lord! I went to church every Sunday. But you never treated your husband the way I taught you to and the way you heard preached from God's Word. Now go to hell. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Because it says this. In that context. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. What is the Father's will which is in heaven? You are hearing it right now. Let's go home and love our spouses like we've never loved them before. Bury them. You say, well, if I'm just giving all the time, I won't get any... (laughs) Okay, let's go back to that. If I give all the time, then I'm just going to be abused and so... I'm going to wait over here until they give a little. Isn't we're right back to the same wisdom. Thank you. Thank you for your wise approach to life. Why do we need the Bible? We need you. We need me. You know, what a ridiculous way of thinking. A few simple things to practice will stop the blame game. The Bible condemns bitterness so bluntly about marriage. Right. Husbands love your wives and be not bitter against them. Colossians 3:19. Bitterness, what is it? It's the result of earlier offenses that weren't corrected or completely resolved. They're still festering there, and so they create bitterness. Husband, if your marriage isn't all that it can be, it's your fault. You're the leader. She's the responder. Any one of the, any one of the rest of us guys could take your wife, and in a few hours she'd be responding. I don't mean anything cruel or wicked by that. I'm just saying you've stopped trying. Dote on her. You used to. So the Bible says, remember from whence thou art fallen about a relationship that no longer has the first love. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Repent and do the first works. You know, back in the beginning, she was the most beautiful thing you could lay your eyes on. You couldn't wait to be with her. You wanted to be with her all the time. Everything you said was nice. Every time she wore a new outfit, you liked it. Everything she cooked was great. Um, Everything she wanted to do, perfect. That's a great idea. Everything was, yeah. That's doing the first works. Husband, if your marriage isn't all that it can be, it's your fault. The buck stops with you. Husband, Recall and use the manage your wife study to allocate her limited resources. You may be twisting your wife out of shape. Wife, if your husband is bitter, lazy, moody, it's likely your fault. Romance him. My wife could. I don't mean anything crude, rude, lewd, or ungodly by that. Every woman knows how to romance a guy. You've just chosen not to because you're lazy, selfish. And something else that I won't say because I'm recorded. But it has to do with witchcraft. Is that enough help? That's why you won't romance your husband. Romance him anyway. Why, why should you? Because God wants you to. Right. Wives, love your husbands. Titus 2, 3 through 5. He's supposed to be content and be ravished with your love. Well, he needs something to be ravished with. Give it to them. Communication, properly made, can correct things your spouse doesn't even know. You know, when you blame each other, why do they keep doing that? Why don't they do what I want? Well, when the time is right, have you sat down and communicated thoroughly about every part of your marriage? Talking works! Not yelling, not barking, not a fighting, opposing, a or being a, a wicked woman. But humbly, meekly, submissively, when you have a chance, maybe write a love note and squeeze a little sentence or two in there about what your husband could do better. I mean, every part of marriage works better with communication. Right. You know, the, it takes two to tango, but two people that talk about tangoing and really talk about tangoing, they're going to tango better than others. It's communication. Right. Even one minute or one minute, even one minute of thought or words about your spouse's faults is counterproductive and sinful. Forgive them. Why don't you show them how to do it? You're not getting enough love, enough love, show them how to do it. I'm not saying that anyone in here, you know, I I'm not trying to pick on any one party in here at all. I want to pick on me, I want to pick on you, I want us to. Love our spouses in a way that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ that I presented to you today. Right. I gave you His names. I gave you His glory. I gave you His majesty. He's given us His power. He's given us life. He's given us light. We should have the best marriages. It's a choice. Love is a choice. Love is not a feeling. If you make the right choice, the feelings will come. Love is an investment. Love is not a return. Love is an investment. The most fun in love is giving. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. These are rules I'm jumping way ahead of myself, but if you will practice those things, they work. They are the word of God. They are the light of Christ, and they're based on his life. We give. We invest in our spouse, and then the returns come, but we don't even do it for the returns. We do it because the greatest pleasure is in giving. If we were at a couple's retreat, I would get very graphic. It is giving that is the most gratifying and the most pleasing and the most rewarding and works the best. And if both, if this husband and wife are both wanting to give and to invest in each other and they're trying to outdo each other as who's going to be the most selfless and really dote and romance the other, eh, life is good. Thank you, Lord, for giving us marriage. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.